0: Uh, It's a joy uh, to be with you this uh, first Sunday of the Advent season. You know that it's Advent because we have poinsettias. Don't bring out some flowers in Advent, but uh, here we are. Um, Advent is a season um, in the Christian calendar, it's also called the liturgical calendar. It marks the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Um, and although non-denominational churches like Christ City, often we don't, we don't center the Christian calendar, many of our fellow Christians around the world, they do as a way of uh, marking the movements of the year through a lens of faith and through discipleship. Um, Advent actually marks the beginning of the calendar. Um, Christmas tide comes next and is the weeks following Christmas. Think of the 12 days of Christmas, which is a song about the day's Following the celebration of Christ's Mass or Christmas, Epiphany follows, and then leads into Lent, and then Easter, uh, and different Christian traditions have other seasons. But there's one actually that I that I kind of like the name. It's called Ordinary Time, uh, which is after Easter, and it circles back to Advent. The word Advent it comes to us from the Latin word Adventus. It means uh, the coming or the arrival. We sometimes, we use this word Advent in kind of some popular ways, like saying sort of the advent of electricity or the advent of the information age with the internet's arrival. But in most cases, we're simply meaning the beginning of a new season, or at least the anticipation of a new season. Advent as uh, both uh, the beginning of the Christian's calendar and the end of our annual calendar kind of serves as dual functions for us. First, it prompts us to look back at Jesus' first arrival, his first advent. We remember Mary and angels and mangers and shepherds and wise men and promises. And advent invites us to look ahead, to the year ahead, in the hope of the second advent when Jesus comes again, arrives again, to set right and set fully and finally all that has been broken and all that has gone wrong in the world and in our lives. Today, we're going to mark a four-week journey of Advent reflections on what it means to wait for God. Each week, we will consider those from the Old Testament who waited, not in some passive sense of the word waiting, but in an active, seeking, listening, acting sense of waiting. Those that waited for God to show up in their lives or in their circumstances or in their families or in their worlds. Those whose whose backs were against the wall, but who trusted in God's never-ending promise of salvation. We're not exactly sure why Advent is four weeks long. Some traditions believe that it represents the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Hebrew Bible, and the opening of the Gospels of Jesus and Jesus' arrival. That period between those two books is 400 years, and each week thus representing 100 years of God's silence and apparent stillness awaiting the right time for Jesus to arrive in the world. Traditionally, each week Christians light a candle that represents one of the great Advent themes of peace and love and joy and hope, and we'll reflect on that today as we look at Hagar's story considering hope. And each candle and the theme it represents, it serves to remind us that Jesus is still our light in our darkness. It's, it's always struck me uh, how Advent is, it, it's, is a, season of, it's a season of juxtapositions. It lays alongside each other things like anticipation and arrival. It invites us to hold in tension these things that are quite different yet are quite needed if we are to understand the story of redemption that God is weaving throughout history. We have to hold the darkness and the light, remembering uh, that we light candles to remember God's promises. Yet we do so for us in D.C. anyway in a moment when we are approaching the longest night of the year, which is just days away. We surround ourselves with boughs of of evergreen, evergreen branches, even while the rest of nature is barren. The days are cold and will get colder still, and the cold feels wide and expansive, yet we work to make small spaces of warmth and meaning by fires that we build with those that we love. It's the here and not yet, it's the light and the dark, the cold and the warmth, the death and life of it all that makes this season so meaningful and the Christmas stories that we tell so necessary. In his soul-stirring essay on seasons, author Parker Palmer, he writes about winter. Winter is a demanding season, he writes, a season when death's victory can seem supreme Few creatures stir, plants do not visibly grow, and nature feels like our enemy. Yet it is in this same season we are, when we are gifted with reminders that times of dormancy and deep rest are essential to all living things. Despite all appearances, nature is not dead in winter. It has gone underground to renew itself and prepare for spring. Winter is a time when we are admonished and even inclined to do the same for ourselves. In many ways, Hagar's story is a winter story. It's an Advent story. It is an awkward story to read. Pray for me while I try and preach this, Joker. (laughs) Hagar's story is a story that is at times brutal and cold. And yet what gets laid alongside of it is mercy and the embrace of God, even in the wild wilderness in which Hagar flees and God arrives. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, we encounter the story of Hagar. It's a hard and complicated story, for in it we encounter enslavement and sexual exploitation of a young woman. And the ending is altogether unsatisfying, frankly, and it can just seem unjust. Yet in the middle of it, in the presence of it, is God's care and God's presence, and to promise that even where there seems to be no hope god is the one who enters pain and makes a way for renewal genesis 16 opens now sarah abram's wife had borne him no children but she had an egyptian slave named hagar sarah and abram are the childless couple that god comes to that uh, four chapters earlier in genesis 12 and offers a promise of a child who would be their heir and usher in a new season of promise and prosperity and healing for them. However, the story progresses and tension builds. Though the couple believe in God's word to them, they cannot see how it's going to come to pass. We come to chapter 16, we learn of Hagar. And based on what we know of the culture and of the time and what's present in Scripture, Hagar is in an oppressive and callous situation. She's most likely young. She's enslaved by a Hebrew family. She's Egyptian, and she's poor. Marissa Stubbs is a nonprofit leader in D.C., a public theologian, and a former elder here at Christ City. Her writing and preaching on this topic has shaped much of my thinking about Hagar. Marissa notes, Hagar's story is one of intersectionality of gender and class and ethnicity and age, Hagar is one whose life is spent navigating and accessing spaces not designed for her as a young, poor woman of color stripped of family and far from home. Sarah can walk into Hagar's room and make any demand she wants for Hagar, her body, and her children are in the control of someone else. Hagar's story revolves around navigating the whims of people with privilege and power. Sarah offers up Hagar... Uh, up to Abram as a surrogate mother to children that Sarah seems unable to have. Genesis 16-2, so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. In this story, Hagar is treated as nothing more than what Margaret Atwood in The Handmaiden's Tale would refer to as a two-legged womb. And yes, the story is 4,000 years old. And yes, the customs of family and relationships and childbearing was far different in the year 1800 BCE than it is in 2023. And yes, children were viewed as a form of safety and security for families, particularly as they entered old age or when they found themselves widowed. All of that is true and necessary for understanding the dynamics unfolding here. Nevertheless... Hagar is a powerless pawn in another woman's quest, Sarah's quest for honor and privilege and security and longevity and safety. And the other troubling thing uh, is that Sarah knows what this oppression is like, for she was exploited in a similar way just a couple of chapters earlier in Genesis 12 in Egypt the hands of Pharaoh. She was given over to a man in power to serve that man's whims. And here she's doing something quite similar to another woman with little power. As Catholic theologian Father Richard Rohr notes, if we don't transform our pain, we will most certainly transmit it. Hagar becomes pregnant with Abram's child, and in response, Sarah abuses Hagar. Scripture says that Sarah mistreated Hagar so viciously that Hagar flees to the wilderness. And that's where she is in Genesis 16, a suppressed, young, pregnant mother who is far from home, who's isolated and hurting and crying, alone in the wilderness. God speaks in chapter 12, and then God's quiet for the next four chapters. And although it's only a few pages in the Bible, it encompasses years in Sarah and Abram's and Hagar's life. And the mounting question is, can God be trusted in these moments? What do we do when God's promises tarry? And it's here that hope enters Hagar's story. It's at this point in the story, on the run, in the desert wilderness that Advent hope begins to peek through. One last note before we get there, though, for us as 21st century readers... It's important for us to remember that this is, first and foremost, it's Hagar's story. It's not ours. If we are to honor Hagar and her memory and her pain and her faith, we have to let her story be her story. Hagar experiences an encounter with God and a holy moment. And I might not agree with how it goes down, and I might not approve of how the story transpires, but Hagar has an encounter with God for herself, and it alters her life and her trajectory. And she becomes the first woman in Scripture, a pregnant, fugitive slave woman, the first woman to name God. Having said all that, invite us to pick up Hagar's story in the desert and see what hope we might find there. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that's beside the road to Shur. I feel like the author's like giving us directions, like how do I get to the office? You go down the street, hang a left at the gas station, the one on the right, and then it's there, got it? And I'm supposed to be like, oh, yeah, the spring, yeah, sure, road beside, got it, okay, perfect. Everybody know where we are? He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, she answered. A messenger of God finds Hagar. Structure of this story, it's familiar for readers of the scripture. It's familiar for us. It's similar to other places in scripture where a messenger an angel, one who brings good news, shows up in an unlikely place, an unlikely place like to shepherds in fields keeping watch over flocks at night, like to an unwed virgin with news that they will give birth to the Savior of the world. This, this messenger of God arrives on a scene in the desert. But the language also indicates that it's not just a messenger, but it's God, God's self. God finds Hagar. Not in a place where Hagar wants to be, not in a, in a state that is Hagar's choosing or preference. God seeks out, looks out, searches out for Hagar. You, you ever played, I know you are, you ever, ever played hide and go seek? You know the game, right? When I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite things to do that my mom absolutely hated uh, was I would like to hide from her. And one of my favorite places uh, to do this was when we were shopping at the mall. And I know it's a terrible situation, uh, but at the time, I'm like four or five, and it was like a blast. We'd be shopping, and I'd hide, like, in the clothes rack at the Mervyn's department store. And it was a great place to hide because I was small. I could, like, I could slip in, you know, to the clothes, you know, the round ones. You know what I'm talking about? I'd slip in the round ones. I could sit in the middle, and then I could, like, peek out, not be seen, and watch my mom, like, you know, losing all of it in the Mervins. It always freaked my mom out. And I'd be there watching her lose her mind, looking for me. And listen, my mom, she is not a quiet woman. So (laughs) the whole store knew she was looking for a kid named Matthew who better get his booty cheeks back over to her this very minute. And then other things that I won't say, in church, there was something that I just kind of liked about that. I'm just, you know, kind of tucked in there, the whole experience of it, being embraced, you know, by these nice clothes that I would never buy, like a giant fabric bear hug in this thing, knowing that somebody was looking for me, knowing that someone noticed when I was gone, and that I was being pursued and, and sought after. Like we all want that. I think we all know that. We want to experience that still. We we want to be sought. We want to be pursued. We want to be wooed. We want to be missed when we're away. We want to experience the kindness of those who miss us and who welcome us back and are glad when we return. Like I said, I I would hide from my mom, and she hated it. It stirred in her heart. Worst fears that I'd be kidnapped at the department store. One day, she turns the tables on me. She did do it at the department store, because, you know, like, authorities might be involved if you do something <laughs> like that. Why is this lady hiding in the clothes rack and this kid walking around? So we lived in this um, we lived in an apartment complex. When I was a kid, one afternoon, uh, I'm home. It's just me and my mom. My dad's working. My brother wasn't born yet, so it's just us. And I'm back in my room, I'm playing, and, um, what, what you know, kind of cartoons are on or whatever I'm doing, fooling around, and then my mom hides, but she she hides in a closet behind the clothes, so I can't, you know, I don't know where she's at. A few minutes go by, I realize that she's not where, you know, where I can call for her, she's not responding back, and I go and I'm looking around, the apartment's not that big, but, you know, when you're four, you're like, oh my God, this is a massive place. Where's my mom? And I'm looking and pretty quickly I'm in a panic. I'm like running around the apartment. I'm shouting. I'm calling for her and I'm losing it and I'm crying and I'm shouting and I'm calling for my mom and I feel lost in my own home. And Eventually she comes out of the closet and I'm happy and mad all at the same time and I run over to her and I'm traumatized for life. And then she tells me, she says, that's how I feel. When When you hide from me at the Mervins, I feel alone, even though there's other people around. And I feel lost, even though I know where I am. A lot of different ways to get lost, are there not? Hagar got lost running from pain and running from trauma. Sometimes we get lost because of bad turns that we take, or bad luck, or bad breaks, and we just end up in places where we didn't intend. Sometimes it's not because of our running, or our bad choices, or even wrong choices. I think sometimes we just get turned around. We just get lost. We lose our way. Or a place that we've known for our whole life suddenly changes and the geography is different and we no longer recognize where we are. However it is that I become lost, however it is that you or that we have become lost, Hagar reminds us that God finds us wherever we are. God meets us in whatever deserts we find ourselves and that none of us are outside of God's gaze or attention, and we are not alone. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. The next thing that the Lord wants Hagar to know is that he hears her cries. But the way that he notes it is through this promise of a son. In Hagar's cultural context, children are viewed as protection and provision. It was through one's family and through one's children that lineage was passed and the ways that one was cared for throughout their lives. And what God is saying to Hagar in a way that would be meaningful to Hagar is this is going to be my mark to you that you are not abandoned. It's through the promised son that God is communicating to Hagar that they are not on their own. Even though they are far from home and family and on the run from a family that could protect them, God is saying to them, You're not alone. I'm going to show you and display to you that meaning and that message. He's saying, I hear your cries in the wilderness. I want to say a couple things here before continuing with Hagar's story. First, for those that have wanted children or have lost children to hear a story about God demonstrating God's care through the giving of a child, it can be a hard story to hear. It can actually further the feeling of isolation and maybe even lostness. I want to recognize the limitations of any words of comfort that I might offer to the disappointment that you've experienced, except to say with Hagar, that God finds you where you are and He hears your tears. Hagar's story isn't so much a story of children, but it's a story of God meeting us and holding us and gathering us in in our seasons of sorrow and saying to us that God has not abandoned us in our disappointment. And second, let me say to those who do have children, let us likewise hear this story as a story that reminds us that God is our provider and God is our protector. It is God that we look to and that we trust, lest we idolize our children, allowing them to occupy a space in our lives that God alone ought to occupy and that God alone can satisfy. Messenger says to Hagar, that the Lord hears your cries in the wilderness and says to us that God hears our cries in our winters, the grunts and groans and and the strains that emerge from our aching hearts and our broken souls, that God hears those. There isn't a a distance that is so far away that our pain cries are not heard by the Almighty. And there isn't a set of circumstances in our lives that is so stifling as to muffle the sound of our laments that God hears our aches as image bearers. The Interpreter is a 2005 film about an interpreter for the United Nations who is from a country in crisis. Towards the end of the film, Interpreter, she has the unlucky task of having to interpret for the president of the country that she was once a citizen of, and a leader who she grew up admiring, because he was a freedom fighter and a revolutionary, but over the years, he's become corrupt and power-seeking. At a poignant moment in the movie, at its climax, she pulls out a book wherein She demands that the president read the preface that he wrote decades earlier about what it means to hear. Reading from his own words, he says, the gunfire around us makes it hard to hear, but the human voice is a different sound. It can be heard over the noises that bury everything else. Even when it's not shouting, even when it's just a whisper, even the lowest whisper can be heard over armies when it's telling the truth. Some of the deepest truth is when we are expressing our pain and our sorrows. The messenger of the Lord says to Hagar that the Lord has heard her misery. And if it isn't enough that God has heard Hagar, God tells her to name her son Ishmael because God has heard her. To quote Marissa Stubbs again, the meaning of Ishmael's name is God will hear. God wants to make sure that Hagar never forgets that God hears her. The days when Hagar doubts her encounter with God and God's Promises to her on days when the reality of slave life is almost unbearable. The name of her son will be a constant reminder of her encounter with the God who found her and the God who heard her. The chapter ends with Hagar's voice. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord. The Lord said, this is what I want you to name your son. Hagar says, "All right, bet. Here's what I'm going to name you. I love the strength and moxie of that. She gave this name to the Lord, to Yahweh, who spoke to her. This is the name. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well was called Berlehi Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Barrett. Hagar pronounces to God that you are the God who sees me. And then follows up with her own statement that she has seen the one who sees me. Hagar is declaring a first hand encounter with the God of the universe. You can, I mean, you can kind of hear, like, you can hear something, but you can hear something secondhand. But you can't see something secondhand. You see it with your. Hagar is saying that she's bore witness with her own eyes to the presence of God and the care of God. You know, sometimes you gotta, you know, you gotta see it to believe it. You, understand? you know, y'all, you, you pick me up. You, you gotta lay your own eyes on it before a thing really sinks in. Uh, my oldest son, Nate, I don't know if he's back there. What's up, my guy? He, uh, Senior year, we're filling out college applications left and right. It's a flurry of activity, flurry of prayers, pleads. Lord, I hope you see us, hear our cries, help my guy, you know, move forward. Senior year, neck deep in college and applications and scholarships and trying to figure out what's next, man. Keep keep us in prayer. A couple weeks ago, Nate sends me a text. This is his text. Accepted into ASU as of eight minutes ago. Arizona State, what's up, a couple of (laughs) y'all. I respond, what? Question mark, exclamation point. Email? Question mark. He responds, yeah. We send back and forth a bunch of emojis and gifts, you know, of celebration. And then I text, hey, can you screenshot or forward? Meaning, now, you know, a few minutes go by I sent another text, hey, send me the message, I want to see, exclamation point, exclamation point. A few more minutes go by, don't leave me on red! exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> now, it wasn't that I didn't believe that he had gotten in. I just wanted to see it. <laughs> you feel me? I just wanted to, you know, with my own eyes, because that's a different level of certainty. Finally, he sends me the screenshot, man, I fell out my chair. Up to this point in the Bible, whenever God is named, God is named by men God, Lord God, Most High, Creator, Sovereign. But Hagar's name, Elroy, the God who sees me, is a personal name. She becomes the first woman, an Egyptian poor, enslaved, oppressed woman, the first woman to give God a name, the God who found me, the God who hears me, and the God who sees me. God enters Hagar's wilderness. He finds her, and he hears her, and he sees her. And generations later, the Lord would come to another of our spiritual foremothers, Meeting her in her own wilderness, in her own moments of outcast under oppression, and a messenger of the Lord would announce to her the arrival of a son who would be and bring salvation. This angel went to this woman and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Lord is with you. Mary was troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting might this be? But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great, be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever in his kingdom. it will never end. We read this as the first advent, but we also hear the hopes found in the proto-advent of Hagar. In Luke, we see that God has again chosen to bring the world's hope forward through a young, marginalized woman. Though this time, our heroine would name her child Emmanuel, the God who has come to live with us. For not only did God find us and hear us and see us, But he came into our world to live with us so that we might know that he is one of us who will rescue us and heal us and hold us all. Whatever desert or winter we are in, we can have hope because of El Roy, the God who sees us, and Emmanuel, the God who is with us. Let me pray for us.